why didn't the world stand up and stop the Nazis? And he said that we didn't know. They didn't know the things that were going on. It is the week of May 23rd, and welcome to episode 133 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, your host. The war in Ukraine continues. Ukrainians are pushing back Russia's advances. In the U.S., there is broad bipartisan support for assistance, both economic and military, to help Ukraine counter this invasion. Today's episode will feature Mike Tobin, Fox News correspondent live from Western Ukraine. You will hear air raid sirens in the background as he discusses what he is seeing on the ground in that war-torn country. Mike, thanks a lot for joining us this week. Oh, my pleasure. It's good to talk to you, Lester. Tell us uh, from 100,000 feet, what's what's your sense of things there on the ground, the mood of the Ukrainians that you've been talking to and, and, the, and the feel that you've got for what's happening? Well, I'll say one thing about the feel uh, is this is my second time coming back into Western Ukraine. Uh, if you crawled out of a cave and just showed up in the town of Lviv, uh, you would not know that this is a nation at war until you started hearing the air, air raid sirens. Uh, we get a couple of air raid sirens every, uh, every day here. And every couple of weeks, there are some fresh strikes here in the Western part of the country. But by and large, people are going about normal life. The cafes are open. Uh, people are, are headed to work. Uh, they, you do have the groups of people who are contributing, people who are welding uh, roadblocks and things of that nature. Uh, but the fight is really concentrated to the south and east of this country. Uh, when you talk with people here, though, they are accepting uh, the very unpleasant idea that they're in this for the long haul. Uh, the only way that there was going to be a short resolution to uh, this war is if Ukraine lost. And Ukraine is not interested in losing this war. They're in the fight, and they know that a lot of, a lot of people are still going to die before they get the Russians out of here altogether. Uh, but they're in the fight until, they, uh, until Ukraine is free again. How, how much of that determination from the Ukrainian people is the difference maker here versus, let's say, the performance of the Russian military and, and the military assistance from the West. Of those three things, what do you think is, is the biggest factor? I think motivation is the biggest factor. Um, the fact that they are fighting for their homes and you have the Russian soldiers who thought that they were just part of a military exercise. Then when you talk about operations, in fact, if you look at the history of, of the Russian military, uh, they have uh, before they have come into places big and arrogant and uh, disconnected. And that really speaks to a lot of the breakdown and a lot of the success on the part of the Ukrainians. And I think going forward, as the Ukrainian resources increase, as the U.S. has just approved this aid package, uh, other countries are piling in in terms of uh, supporting Ukraine, uh, and then if the sanctions indeed are effective, you're going to see the Russian uh, resources decrease over time and the advantage will go to the Ukrainians, but it's not going to happen quickly. Uh, it's still going to be a bloody war. What are the differences, to the extent you can kind of talk about this broadly, between what you've seen in Ukraine and other combat zones you've been in, Afghanistan, places like that? You know, this is the first time I've seen a couple of armies that were matched. You usually have a really lopsided fight, even when you're talking about the Northern Alliance coming into um, uh, coming into Afghanistan with U.S. with U.S. backed forces. It was pretty clear who was going to win. And then covering something like the uh, Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict. Uh, of course, the Israeli has a, the Israelis have a, a dominant army when they go into something like that. So it's the first time I've ever really seen a, a, a ground battle that was matched and that could sustain for a long period of time. And frankly, I think that surprised everyone. As we saw the Russians coming down from the north, we expected it was going to be a matter of days uh, until Kiev uh, fell. 
And now you see the reality on the ground is, in fact, that the Russians have retreated, have retreated and, uh, and uh, um, Kiev is still standing. In fact, uh, it, forced, uh, it forced Vladimir Putin to, to frankly, change uh, the narrative and the way he was going about this war. Um, what's your read? I didn't know this is going to sound like a very Washington-centric question. Uh, forgive me, but what, what's your sense of how the Ukrainians think of the decision-making in the West, where uh, NATO, Washington, European countries do seem to have rallied to help the Ukrainians without taking a direct, you know, without directly going into harm's way? What's the, what's the populace uh, think of that basic approach? I think they feel that Washington and the West could have done more. They could have done more sooner. Uh, the fact that uh, they're getting some aid isn't really too little, too late, but they would have liked it earlier. I think there is a belief, uh, kind of an undercurrent, that the West could have stepped in. Uh, the West could have imposed sanctions before the invasion when it was very clear that Russia was getting ready to invade. Uh, they could have done something about it then and possibly prevented the initial invasion. Uh, as it relates to support from the West, though, uh, all you're going to hear publicly, particularly out of the Ukrainian officials, is they're grateful for everything they can get because they need everything they can get their hands on because they're, they're you know, fighting a, a, a bigger army. They need all the help they can get. You know, from from here, from Washington, it seems like President Zelensky is a world class communicator. He's addressing Europe. He's addressing uh, policymakers in Washington. He's speak, spoken to Congress a couple of times. Uh, he's he's really communicating to the whole world in the middle of a war zone and seems to have been just this amazing uh, revelation for a lot of us and, and really uh, maybe the Winston Churchill of his time. That's what it looks like from here. Is that the same view from where you are now? It's pretty interesting that he is a guy who read the situation, understood his strengths. He wasn't about to micromanage uh, uh, the Ukrainian military. He knew what he could do was, frankly, go about this this video conference world tour that he has done, going from parliament to parliament and getting gathering all the resources he can for his troops. Uh, it seems that he understands uh, what he can do is give his guys the tools to work with and let them run. And you Compare that uh, to the, uh, the the Russian model, where they are a very top-down uh, sort of command structure. And uh, you've got a, a lot of these uh, units that move forward, and then they don't move again until they're getting their orders. And frankly, that seems to be the reason that you're seeing a lot of these high-ranking uh, Russians and generals uh, getting picked off by snipers. Uh, it also goes back to the, uh, the poor communications. They're giving their orders. Uh, they don't see things executing on their own. They don't see units moving around. So they come up to the front. So they can at least communicate directly with their guys on the field uh, and get a battlefield assessment uh, for themselves. And when they come up front, there's been some reporting that they've uh, uh, that the Ukrainians have been able to do this with U.S. intel. Uh, but then the, the, the top level guys are getting picked off by the Ukrainian snipers because they're uh, up front where they're vulnerable. They're not uh, in the rear with the gear, if you will. What, what has surprised you most about this conflict in the last uh, three months or so? I think just how poorly the Russians uh, are, are doing. I think we all uh, uh, were afraid of the big Russian specter and the fact that they came in so disconnected and so arrogant. And uh, frankly, I, I think suffering from corruption when you saw them get bogged down uh, in the uh, in the uh, north of uh, Kiev uh, because they had bad tires, they had bad fuel, they were running out of fuel. Uh, it was really surprising to see just uh, we, we were so afraid of the Russian army for so long uh, just to see how bad they were when the time came. 
Uh, that has certainly surprised me. The resolve of the Ukrainian forces uh, has, has surprised me throughout this. Uh, and I, I guess that would be the two of them in terms of surprise. Do you think do you think the Ukrainians were as surprised by Russian incompetence? I know they were they've been engaged in conflict. Maybe it was a low level conflict, but conflict in the Donbass for the last eight years. Right. Ukraines saw the Russians up close and personal. Do you think they were as surprised as we were? I, I think so, because I, I, I think when you look at the conflict that uh, drew out really since 2014 in the Donbass region, um, you never got the feeling that the Russians were bringing their A game. Well, this was 75 percent of the Russians fighting for uh, Russian fighting force in the early stages of this war. And uh, and they just weren't able to be effective. So I think the Ukrainians were uh, uh, were surprised as well. But all of the Ukrainians, even from the first day of the invasion, the guys who wanted to jump in and join the reservists, uh, they were committed to uh, sacrifice, their, sacrifice their lives if they needed to. Uh, they didn't want to go back to the Soviet Union. They didn't want to go back to that Soviet command structure, government structure. And uh, they were ready to fight. They were entirely committed. And then you have on the other side a bunch of Russians who didn't really know what they were doing. If you uh, look at uh, uh, statements from prisoners of war and the texts that they sent back to their families. Mike, the mood in Washington is, is as uh, again, I'm doing the Washington centric mm-hmm. thing. Forgive me. The, the mood in Washington has never been really more partisan than it is now. There's a lot of nastiness. We're in an election cycle. Uh, there's there's very little common ground with the possible exception of of aid to Ukraine. So as an American, when you go to Ukraine and you're there in a conflict where this uh, where people's lives are on the line and the and the tension is in a way much, much more real, does that sense of division and partisanship kind of fall away and you and you get a different perspective on the squabbles we have here in the States? Well, among the uh, Ukrainians, I think the partisanship uh, fell away immediately. They have a tremendous amount of unity. And uh, keep in mind, before the invasion, uh, Zelensky was not a popular president, particularly out here in the East. He had somewhere around 25 percent approval rating, which shot up to about 95 uh, percent uh, as he started to uh, to play his role here. Uh, I think that uh, the perspective of uh, the U.S. and the partisanship uh, is very petty from the perspective here. Uh, and I think that it continues uh, the partisanship in the U.S. with a lot of bad information. What I'm seeing on social media is a lot of people think that somehow that uh, the U.S. soldiers are, are going to be expected to get involved in this conflict, um, which, of course, isn't true, at least at this stage. Uh, you're not going to see any NATO troops get involved. Um, and uh, I think a lot of people uh, are questioning whether uh, U.S. Uh, tax dollars should be part of this conflict. Uh, but uh, if you look even from Senator McConnell, what he said yesterday, that if you're worried about the cost of, uh, of supporting Ukraine in this war, Imagine the cost if they lose the war and Russia, Russia prevails and then just continues to be aggressive uh, in this part of the world. You, you may have stolen my next question, which was, uh, you know, they say truth is uh, the first casualty of war. Maybe aside from what you've just mentioned, what false impressions do you think Americans might be getting about the fighting going on in Ukraine? I think that would be it, that somehow they're uh, counting on the U.S. or that the U.S. is, is uh, uh, going to be the only um, uh, supporter, the main supporter of this war, that no one else is putting their tax dollars uh, into this. Uh, when you have a, you know, from England in particular, you have a tremendous amount of, uh, of support for uh, for this war. Um, and I think uh, the people in the West are realizing that uh, that you've got to support the Ukrainians right now because uh, failure isn't an option, even though in the early days we expected that failure was going to come uh, pretty quickly. So, But the good news for the uh, Ukrainians is that they're still in the fight. The bad news for the Ukrainians is that they're still in the fight. And this is 
going to be a long, bloody uh, conflict before it resolves. So the course of this war, uh, of course, I think most people know this, you know, the initial Russian move on all of Ukraine was rebuffed by the Ukrainians in, in amazing fashion. And now now Russia has kind of accounted for that failure in a way and is now making a more specific push through Donbass across the, the north shore of the Azov Sea. Uh, and is and is much more focused on what it's doing. Not necessarily more successful, but more focused. Have right. you sensed a change in resolve among Russians over the last three months as they've they've kind of gone from this big failure to maybe a more specific effort well, from the top down? Uh, you saw Vladimir Putin's initial statement. He kind of created uh, his narrative with a with a convenient out for himself. Uh, it was clear that they were going to try to take at least Kiev and and control of the capital city uh, if they weren't going to uh, keep coming uh, west of the Dnipro River. Um, it was clear that they intended to take large swaths of land. But that uh, narrative that he laid out that they were just going to liberate the people of the Donbass region made it convenient for him to now retreat to what he, he is doing. Uh, but you'll also see that uh, when they retreat from cities like Kharkiv, which is uh, in the process right now, that they're not having success there. So they're continuing to pull back and focus more resources, uh, focusing in the south and the east. If you also look to the uh, to the west uh, in Mykolaiv, it looks like they're trying to get Odessa and control all of the access of the port, uh, but they can't get their forces across the what is the Boog River there, uh, uh, just west of Mykolaiv, uh, and so they can't advance in the direction of Odessa. So, uh, you know, beyond the initial statements, Russia hasn't really had much in terms of a narrative, other than that they're going to try to uh, liberate those people in the south and the east, but they keep scaling back what appears to be their military objectives uh, as they retreat and retreat and focus and focus. Uh, they've got a lot. They had a lot of resources tied up in uh, Mariupol at the steel plant, as it looks like the fall of Mariupol is imminent. Uh, that's going to free up some resources for them uh, in one aspect to uh, handle more fighting. But also, once you uh, once you take over a town, now you got to run it. So that's going to that's going to take some resources from them as well. Mike, there's a uh, there's a, a sense among the uh, at least that I've seen in the reporting here in Washington and in the, in the states that this conflict is going to get bogged down with uh, basically forces where they are now. The Russians aren't really able to advance. The Ukraine seem to be holding them off. Unclear whether the Ukrainians will be able to push the Russians back from the from those lines that they have established. What's what's your sense of that? where you are. I think you're right. And uh, I think as it drones on, I think uh, particularly uh, the Americans, their attention will go elsewhere as it's uh, uh, not really clear where the where the victories and losses are as we get into uh, uh, pitched battles over over lines on a map and pitched battles over control of little towns. Uh, I think, as you've seen, people are getting interested in Johnny Depp and Amber Heard uh, early on in the conflict, even when people got interested in the big slap at the Oscars. Uh, frankly, from my standpoint here, I was uh, my feelings were a little bit hurt as we got bumped out of the lead story. But uh, I think that people just can't take it, uh, that this this war is so horrible. The reality of this, the fact that it's happening in a post-World War II uh, world, I think that a lot of people are just turning their attention to other things uh, because it is so awful and so horribly real out here. So I think it will, as you mentioned, it will it will drag on, it will bog down, but it will remain just as, just as terrible as it has been to this point. So another another part of the story, of course, is what's happening inside Russia, where people have been protesting the war, protesting the Putin regime. Uh, journalists have been, uh, you know, repressed, oppressed, attacked 
in, in that country. What's your, as, as an American journalist, how do you think about your, you know, your fellow journalists in Russia in that environment? Well, uh, first of all, I should point out the air raid sirens have just started up. I don't know off the uh, I've got the clip mic here and I don't know if it's doing an effective job of, uh, of getting the audio. Let me be quiet for one second. I don't know if you can hear those air raid sirens or not. Can't, can't uh, if we start to hear some impacts, I'll, I'll try to update you if, uh, okay. um, if we indeed we do have some airstrikes coming in. Uh, but in answer to your question, I, I think that the Russian journalists, um, they're, they're really tied down. Uh, some of them, uh, if you see some of the talk shows, are starting to uh, express some skepticism about the war, uh, but they're really not free to report. Uh, one of the things that uh, one of the laws that uh, was passed since the start of this war is a, a stiff penalty for fake news. And as you know, the, uh, the, the definition of fake news, frankly, worldwide is anything you don't want to hear. So if the government doesn't like the things you're reporting, uh, you could be looking at 13 years in prison. And uh, with these protesters who are showing up in, uh, in Russia, it's quite a bit different than the people who are showing up uh, at protests in the states, uh, because if they find that you're uh, treasonous in your in your uh, protest and it's really loose how they can apply the law to call to call that treason. But if they find you're uh, treasonous, you can be facing up to 15 years in prison. So it's quite a different level of courage uh, to get up and oppose uh, the forces of your government and protest, as opposed to the people in the states who uh, show up uh, with the police uh, providing them safe passage and blocking off the roadways to make sure no one gets hurt uh, while they chant F the police. Mike, let me um, ask you about uh, what something that happened early in the war. You lost some colleagues uh, from Fox News uh, in in combat. What can you tell us uh, about your experience with that? Your feelings, your and your uh, and your colleagues that you lost. Well, Sasha, I didn't know her very well. She had just started working with us uh, in this conflict. And uh, I was here in Lviv. She was working out of Kiev the whole time. Uh, I didn't know her, but uh, I know that her family is is just devastated uh, by the sudden loss of Sasha. Pierre Zachevsky uh, was a very good friend of mine. He and I covered conflicts in uh, Iraq and all over the Palestinian territories. And he was uh, one of those guys who, uh, you know, if I didn't work with him, I would have liked him anyway. And uh, there are some people that you work with and don't spend time with socially. Pierre was a guy that uh, I made a point of uh, visiting if I was traveling through London, uh, uh, where he lived, or even last time we were both in, uh, in Israel, we met up in Tel Aviv to uh, uh, just spend some time socially and, uh, and relaxing with each other. And in this conflict, I was on the phone with him every day uh, talking about the threats that, uh, that uh, we perceived out here. And uh, one of the things that we talked about is that we were afraid, well, frankly, we we're afraid of the checkpoints because you had a lot of... Uh, militias at the checkpoints. They weren't very disciplined. Uh, they were drinking out of the checkpoints. Uh, we were afraid of the uh, uh, MLRS, the multiple launch rocket systems, because that's part of the uh, indiscriminate fire, the artillery that comes into towns. That's very indiscriminate. And uh, we're afraid of the mortars because the mortars are uh, also, you can't really aim those. And uh, ultimately that's what got Pierre. And uh, so his loss is um, frankly losing him in a time like that. Uh, maybe that was the best thing for me. Uh, uh, I learned about it. Uh, well, his death was confirmed uh, over the earpiece as I was getting ready to go live. And uh, so there wasn't really any time to deal with the emotions of, of, of losing a buddy. I just uh, uh, move forward. Uh, I guess I'm, I'm glad that uh, uh, Pierre, uh, right up to the end of his life, was doing something that he loved to do, that he was deep in the throes and the passion of this business. 
Um, but uh, he's, a, he's a guy I'm going to miss terribly. Uh, Benjamin Hall, uh, as you know, was injured severely. Uh, an update on his condition, as, as, as severely as he was injured, he lost a foot. It looks like uh, he's going to lose an eye uh, in the course of this, but he is back up and walking uh, with a cane. Uh, he's got a patch over that eye. And when you hear someone uh, lost an eye uh, due to shrapnel, uh, you, you assume that uh, his whole face is torn up. And frankly, one of the strengths of Benjamin Hall is that he was a good looking guy. And uh, I've seen the pictures of him and he looks all right. And so I think that Benjamin is uh, in terms of uh, making a full comeback. Well, that's not going to happen. Uh, he's, you know, he's had life changing injuries, but uh, the ability of him to uh, return to this line of work, I, th- I think is very real. It's very possible. Uh, Mike, I want to thank you for uh going over to Ukraine, putting yourself at risk, uh, as, and we've just heard uh, what, uh, just how risky it is uh, to let us know what is going on in that uh, terrifically important story. Uh, your courage really is, is an example uh, for, the, for the rest of America, I think, and I think uh, the, the work that you're doing is really critically important, and, uh, and I just want to say, you know, on, on behalf of, uh, of our listeners, uh, thanks a lot for being with us. Thanks for doing the job that you do and, uh, and for doing it so well. Well, that's very kind. Uh, you know, my dad served in uh, in World War II. He was in the South Pacific, uh, not in the uh, European theater. But uh, I asked him at one point when I when I was young, uh, why didn't the world stand up and stop the Nazis? And he said, no, we didn't know. They didn't know the things that were going on. So uh, uh, to your point, I think that journalists uh, journalists are, are very important in this particular conflict. Uh, we're going to let the world uh, know the best uh, the best we can. Uh, that's a nice compliment that you uh, you gave to me. So I appreciate that very much. And uh, and I appreciate you being on the show. I appreciate your listeners. Mike, uh, stay safe. Uh, and we hope to talk to you soon. Thank you. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonMatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Ariel Marin for research assistance, and our producer, Ruth Joe for her amazing work. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.